First John chapter 3, please. We're going to talk about love. A love that's out of this world. And it is. First John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. The little boy asked his daddy one time, Daddy, what's a Christian? And I thought his daddy had a pretty good explanation. He said, well, a Christian's a person who loves and obeys God. He loves his friends and neighbors and even loves his enemies. He prays often. He's kind. He's gentle. He's holy. He's more interested in going to heaven than in earthly riches. And he said, that son is a Christian. Amen. And the boy thought about it for a minute. He said, Daddy, have I ever seen one? Oh, wow, what a question that that child, it must have just shocked the father when his son asked if he had ever seen a Christian because daddy's giving them this definition. You know, it's possible that sometimes we as God's people talk a real good talk, but we don't walk a real good walk. It's very possible that we might be able to tell someone what a Christian is and even profess to be one ourselves, but have we ever shown the world what a Christian really is? This isn't necessarily a Christmas message, although it's coming at Christmas time, but folks, I think it is a Christmas message because we're talking about God's love for us. In chapter 2, if you want to look back just a little bit of First John, the apostle has dealt with the world. You look at verse 15, he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He said, All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. In verse 17, he says, And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And so there's the world that we live in, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Beginning in verse 20, he draws a contrast between that, the world, and the child of God. Because look at what he says in verse 20. But ye, he's writing to save people now, but ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. What is an unction? We don't use that word a lot today. What is an unction? Ye have an unction from the Holy One. It's an anointing. It's a special endowment. Literally, he's talking about the Holy Spirit who resides within us. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to us as we come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. He came into each and every one of us who is saved at the moment we repented toward God and put our faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. And He will never leave, will He? In fact, Jesus said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee, okay? This coming of the Holy Spirit into the child of God, folks, is never repeated when you were saved, you got all of the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get. Amen. I know there are folks that teach otherwise, but that's not according to the Word of God. When you were saved, you got all of the Spirit you're going to get. The question is, did the Holy Spirit get all of you? Right. Or did you just give Him all you want Him to have? 
The Old Testament priests were anointed with oil when they were inducted into the priesthood. The Bible teaches us that we are priests of God. Jesus is the high priest and, and we are priests. You don't need to go to a priest. You are a priest. You go to God through the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. We just read that a few weeks ago in the book of 1 Timothy, the second chapter. And so we have been anointed and that anointing of the Old Testament priest happened one time. We have been anointed one time with the entrance of the Holy Spirit. And then he tells us in verses 26 through 28 what this unction will do, what this anointing, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit will do. In fact, if you look at it, he says, The anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you and teacheth you all things and is truth. If you look back to verse 20, look at what he says there. He says, We know all things. Now that not to give us an arrogant attitude. Have you ever known anybody that, in fact, somebody who professed to be a child of God who acted like they knew everything? Well, that's not what that's talking about. What's he talking about when he says that we know all things? Because this anointing, this unction, this residing of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the child of God, here's what it does. It gives us the ability to rightly divide the word of truth. To understand God's word and to detect error. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, the Apostle Paul writing to the members of the church at Corinth, saved individuals. He said, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. We have a knowledge. Which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And then he says this. Here's the difference between the child of God and the person who's not saved. One of the differences. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Brother Truman sort of got on my message a little bit in Sunday school. The people say, I can't understand the Bible. Well, if you can't understand the Bible, there's one of two problems. Either you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, and you know that's where so many of these so-called quote-unquote Christian religions come from. They were started by people who found what they thought was the way to be saved, and they applied works or church membership or other things, and they were never saved themselves, and so they read the Bible with human understanding, and they come up with a lot of things that are foreign to the Word of God. The other problem is, if you're a child of God and you say you can't understand the Bible, you're not spending enough time in it. You're not praying when you study it. You're not listening to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. You're not letting Him guide you, okay? So one of those two problems, because you're trying to, if you're a child of God, you're trying to understand the Bible in human thinking, the natural man, that, this flesh that's just contaminated with sin. And when we understand, try to understand the Bible from a fleshly viewpoint, folks, we're not going to get it. And we let the Holy Spirit direct us and lead us and teach us. We will learn the Word of God. And so it will teach us knowledge. The Holy Spirit will teach us knowledge as children of God, but He'll do something else also. This anointing, this residing of the Holy Spirit will lead us to abide 
And that word just means to be settled down, to be fixed, to be at home in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have this anointing from God, and it has great potential for every child of God, doesn't it? But you know when the help comes? Only when we apply it, only when we are controlled by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but what? It gives a contrast, but be filled with the Spirit. And the way a man would be filled with an intoxicant and controlled by the intoxicant, we are to be filled up with the Spirit or controlled by the Holy Spirit as children of God. As believers, we are warned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 not to quench the Spirit. You know, I think a lot of spirit quenching goes on in Baptist churches about the time the message begins. You know, one of the chief quenchers of the Holy Spirit in the worship services in one of the Lord's churches it's hanging right back there on the wall. The clock. I don't want to get started. I, I want to stay with the message, all right? Oh, I want to so badly. I'm going to try to get back over here and stay with the message, but I tell you what, we'll spend two or three hours watching a movie or a sporting event or something, and we come to church, and if the sermon runs over 30 minutes, we complain about it being too long. Boy, it's awful quiet in here. What does John say in this second chapter about those who would deny Jesus? He says in verse 22, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Now he didn't say he is the Antichrist. He said he is a liar first of all. That's somebody who utters an untruth or somebody who just attempts to deceive others even with true words. You know, you can say a lot of things that are true and the juxtaposition of those words can sometimes lead people to think things that are untrue. I'm not going to use the illustration I've used for years. I've shared it with you before. But you can just put two true phrases together and you put them together just right. You can lead people to believe something that's untrue. That's a liar. And then he says he's antichrist. Again, not the antichrist. The word anti or anti can mean either opposite or instead of. See, we think of it as opposed to. We think, oh, the Antichrist is going to come and be opposed to Christ. He may. He will be in his heart and in his actions. But we don't know how he's going to present himself. He's going to come presenting himself as greater than God. 1 Thessalonians 2 says. But the word anti in, used in Luke 11 Jesus was giving the illustration of how fathers know how to give good things. He said, your son asked a fish, would you give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or four fish. And that word for there is this word in time. Would you, give, would you give your child, if they ask for a fish, would you give them a snake instead of a fish? No, we know how to do good things. And so we get the meaning of that word. And here he says, somebody who denies that Jesus is the Christ has the spirit of Antichrist. Now, Whose spirit does Antichrist have? Satan's. And so anybody who denies that Jesus is the Christ is operating in the spirit and by the power of the devil himself, folks. Amen. That's the word of God. Then in verse 23, John deals with what we might call the unfaithful believer. Whoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Think about those words, whosoever denieth the Son. 
Would you deny Jesus? Deny here means to contradict, to disavow, to reject, okay? Now, I don't think anybody, even a, especially a saved person, would say, I don't believe Jesus is the Christ. I don't think a saved person would say, I don't believe in Jesus. If they do, they're not saved. If they really believe that, you know what? But are there other ways to deny Jesus without just coming out and saying those words? There certainly are. In fact, listen to what John says in verse 19 about some who had been there and who had gone out. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. He's talking about lives. He's talking about living. Somebody comes, they make a profession of faith in Christ. They hang around for a little while and then they're gone and you don't ever see them again. Good chance they might have not really been saved when they made that profession. I'm not judging. I'm just saying there's a good chance. Because he's talking about their living. Why do folks leave the Lord's churches? Why would somebody leave a church that they believe was a church of the Lord Jesus Christ? In many cases, it's because they weren't saved in the first place. It's just awful quiet in here today. I have a great fear. I have a lot of fears. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and one of my fears is this, and I think it's, it's an appropriate fear, that many, many people whose names are on church rolls, who believe they're saved because their name's on the church roll, are going to go to hell from the pew of a Baptist church. Amen. And that some will go to hell from the pews of this church. You say, who are you talking about, preacher? I'm not talking about anybody in general. I'm talking about what John's talking about. Why people go out from us? Because they're not of us. Never were of us. That's what he's saying here. You know, some will come along to say I'm saved, like I said, and, and in just a few months. And we see no desire to change their lives. I can think of one individual right now that I know. He's not a member of this church. He doesn't live in this town. I've been his pastor at times. But, you know, he said he was saved. He joined the church. His language never changed. His attitude never changed. The way he dealt with people never changed. He gave good evidence. See, when you're saved, there's going to be a change, isn't there? If nothing else in your outlook, in your attitude, in your dealing with people. And so when there's no change... They give good evidence that they were not of us and then they just, just go out and we don't see them anymore. And then he told us how to live. We're going to get to our text in just a moment. Then John told us how to live so that we leave absolutely no question about our relationship with the Lord. In other words, so that when people see our living, they can say, I saw a Christian. You know, that's sort of a rarity today in our world is to actually see a real Christian. I've never been a bird watcher. I like to watch birds, but I'm not a bird watcher. But we have a bird watcher in our family, don't I? And, and so he'll get excited about seeing certain kinds of birds and so forth. We ought to get excited about seeing Christians today, real Christians, okay? But in verse 29, John talks about right living. If ye know that he, talking about the Lord, talking about Jesus, talking about God, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. But I have an extra word that I put in there for me. Everyone that habitually doeth righteousness is born of him. See, even a lost man can do something good every once in a while. 
A child of God is habitually righteous, habitually wants to do that which is right, knows the difference between right or wrong, and habitually tries to live according to the word of God. In verse 28, he tells us how to have that habitually righteous life so that we're not ashamed before our Lord. And he says this, and now little children abide in him. What does abide mean? Be settled down, be at home in Christ. Abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Can you imagine being ashamed before the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? What would cause us to be ashamed before Jesus when he comes? Well, not living for him if we professed him as Savior. I'd hate to be anywhere else but in church on a Sunday at 11 o'clock or 11.30 on a Sunday morning when Jesus came. I don't want to be ashamed before my Lord ever and certainly not at his coming. So in these first three verses of 1 John chapter 3, John's going to tell us what we are, what we shall be, and what we should be as children of God. Okay? First of all, he tells us what we are. This is the dignity of the believer. Look at this. Behold what, if you can't get excited about this, I don't know what to think of you. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. The first thing he says is behold what manner of love. This word behold is in the plural. It's instruction to all believers. It's instruction to every believer. And the word behold means to sense and to see with awakened understanding. Oh, it's easy to sing Jesus loves me. Popular song. But do we get what we're singing? Do we understand, do we behold the manner, the greatness of the love, the out of this world? Because what manner, by the way, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. What manner of love talks about something foreign, something from a foreign country or race or tribe. And it could be what otherworldly type of love the Father has bestowed upon us. God's love's out of this world. It's not of this world. In fact, when the Holy Spirit directed men to write the New Testament. He led them to actually create a word to talk about God's love. Agape or agape. And we've heard it so much, we sort of take that for granted. Oh, it's self-sacrificing love, right? No. That's God's love. The innocent dying for the guilty. God dying for sinners. It's a love that we do not deserve and it is a love that does not wait for us to be what we ought to be. You know, we, a lot of times, well, I'll love you if you'll love me. No, God loves his enemies. Amen. What manner of love has God bestowed upon us? What foreign type of love? What out of this world kind of love has God bestowed upon this? It's out of this world. It is foreign to human nature. God's love is not found naturally in human beings. There are at least two other words used in the scripture to talk about love from the Greek language. There's one talks about phileo, fondness, brotherly love. The other is eros, which is an erotic or physical type of love. But then there is this love that God has for us. The other two are according to human nature. This agape love is according to God. While recognizing us as Christians... You realize that those who don't know Christ as Savior have no understanding and they have no appreciation of our nature? 
Because God's given us a new nature. God showed his love upon us and God has filled us with this agape, self-sacrificing love. And so John just says, hey, spend some time thinking about the love God has shown to you. He took a lost sinner. He took somebody headed to hell. He took a child of the devil. You say, now, wait a minute, preacher. <laughs> You're calling me what? Well, that's what we were. I think we'll get to that in a moment. He took a child of the devil and turned him into a child of God by his great love, by repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the world has never had a saving relationship with the Father and they don't understand that. In fact, just look over to chapter 4 for just a moment in 1 John. Familiar verses of Scripture, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. God's love has been manifested to us. We read about it in the scriptures. We know about it not just in the birth of Jesus. You know, people spend a lot of time. I liked something I saw on Facebook the other day. We spend a lot of time trying to convince children there's a Santa. Why don't we spend as much time trying to convince them that Jesus is real? Amen. Not just a baby in a manger, but a Savior hanging on the cross. And sometimes, like I say, I think we're overly familiar with agape. But he says, look, it's the love the Father hath bestowed upon us. What does it mean to bestow it upon us? It's something you give somebody. In about a week, we're going to bestow gifts. None like the one God bestowed, okay? We're going to bestow gifts upon us. What does it mean? We're going to give gifts to each other. We're not going to give like God gives. God gives the gift, but he doesn't expect you to give anything equal to that gift back because you can't. But you know how we are at Christmas. I, 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 was, telling, I was telling Cherry earlier, I said, you know, this is one of the, my, the things that bugs me about Christmas. One of the reasons I really have a problem with it because, you know, I've got to find the perfect gift. I've got to give my wife the perfect gift because she's going to give me the perfect gift and she wouldn't do it, but I mean, this is general thinking. If I don't give her a gift equivalent to what she gives me, why well, the whole thing's Messed up, you know. And that's sort of the way we think this time of year. But God has given us the perfect gift in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has bestowed upon us, and it's perfect tense here. You know what that means? It's permanent. It is our permanent possession. It's something that happened in the past with results that continue into the future. And any time that becomes today, we've got it. God has placed his love upon saved people in the sense that we have become permanent objects of God's love. You know you can't make God quit loving you. Amen. We have two children. I love them both. Have they always made me happy? No. Have there been times I wanted to pinch their heads off? Yes. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's just the way it is. Your parents, you know that. But I'll never quit loving them. God may have to chasten us Severely sometimes as his children, but he will never quit. Did I spank my children? You better believe it. <laughs> and sometimes God spanks his children. Amen. I never understood this hurts me more than it hurts you until I became a parent. How much does it hurt God to have to chasten his children? 
God's placed his love upon us. We're permanent objects of that love. It will never end. And here's one of the results of it, that we should be called the sons of the born ones or the children of God. It's only because of his marvelous love, folks, that we've been saved. Amen. That's the only reason we can claim to be a child of God, to be a born one of God. Listen, the scripture teaches we have both a birth and an adoption into God's family. How about that? We're just twofold children of God, all right? It's permanent. And this is the dignity of the believer. I'm a child of God. Years ago, I saw a t-shirt. I sort of liked it, sort of didn't know what to think about it, but it says, I know I'm somebody special because God don't make no junk. Well, you're somebody special. You are a child of God. Is it possible that we believers have become so accustomed to expecting God's love that we no longer stand in awe of it? Ever seen a child that seemed to take his or her parents for granted? Almost constantly saying, give me, I used to have this phrase, I'd say, give me, get me, do for me, buy me. That's what you hear a lot of times from children, little children. I want this, I want, I want, I want, I want. And that's the way we treat God sometimes. Seldom children like that are seldom showing any gratitude or appreciation for the love that they're shown. Amen. I listened to a preacher yesterday said this, and I like it. He said, you know, the word of God says children obey your parents. He said our society today is saying parents obey your children. And that's what a society expects. And if we expect our children to obey us, then we're guilty almost of child abuse in society's sight. I've got to hurry along, I know. I'm going to use myself as an example right here. I was saved at a young age. I've been saved the majority of my life. For over three-fourths of my life, I have basked, okay, in the love of God. So much so that it may be possible that I have come to expect the love of God. In fact, it's possible that we can take God's love for granted and even think of it as something that he owes us. You know what that is? We have a term for that today. An entitlement attitude. Be thankful for the love of God. He's not going to take it away, but he loves you. We just need to take some time to consider God's love for undeserving us. We didn't deserve it. We need to meditate, to contemplate the love of God, to spend time thinking about it and thanking God for his love for us. And there's no better time than right here at Christmas season, is there? Look at that baby in the manger. But remember that baby went to the cross and thank God he sent his only begotten son by a virgin to live a perfect life to willingly go to the cross and give himself a sacrifice for us. Wise men and women who truly experience its fullness, the fullness of the understanding of God's love will stand in awe at it. And it'll astound us. The dignity of the believer, what we are. But then there is the destiny of the believer, verse 2, and it just gets gooder. The emphasis of verse 2 is what the saved will be like in the future. And so John presents present and future conditions. Right now, he says, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Now I have my own version of that. John's saying, you're a child of God right now, but you sure don't look like it. Amen. You're a child of God, but you don't always act like it, okay? It does not yet appear what we shall be. 
B, it hasn't been made manifest. And by the way, the word what here suggests something unspeakable, something contained in the likeness of God. You're a son of God right now, but listen, you have no idea what God has in store. What's it going to be like to have a glorified body? Well, I don't know. I never had one. You know, what's it going to be like to be like Jesus? I don't know. I've never been like Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. We have no idea what the glorified body is going to look like, what form it will take. Listen to what it says. But some man will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may it may chance of wheat or of some other grain, but God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him and to every seed his own body. He goes on to say in verse 44, it's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. What are you going to look like in the glorified body? What are you going to look like when Christ comes? What are you going to look like in heaven? I have no idea. Amen. But I know it's going to be good. Think about this. And I like to garden still, even though I don't have a lot of room. I used to grow corn, and I like this illustration. You take a kernel of corn, and you put it in the ground. I used to put two or three in each hole, okay? Folks, what comes out of the ground doesn't look anything like what you put in the ground. Amen. Tall stalks, years of corn on them. And I like to think about that when I think about receiving the glorified body and the Lord coming back and getting that body. We take these old sick, sin-filled, aged, dead bodies and we put them in the ground and what comes up at the resurrection is going to be so glorious it doesn't look anything like Amen. this body. Amen. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Yes, right now I'm a son of God and it doesn't appear what I'm going to be. A lot of people have a lot of questions. What are we going to look like? Will we know one another? I don't know what we're going to look like. My dad used to ask all the time, well, I know your mother in heaven. I said, yes, you'll know her in heaven. You won't know her as your wife. You'll know her as your sister in Christ because that's a higher, more enduring relationship than this earthly relationship of husband and wife. I don't know what we'll look like, but folks, I can guarantee you, I believe, I know that we'll know one another in heaven. Let me give you a couple of examples very quickly. Peter, James, and John go up in the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Jesus is transfigured before them. And Moses and Elijah appear. And Peter, I love Peter. I just, he, just, he talks when he shouldn't sometimes, you know, says things he shouldn't say. He reminds me of me, you know. <laughs> if I could relate to any of the apostles, it would be Peter. And so in that scene, he sees Moses and Elijah. He said, Lord, Hey, this is good that we're here. Why don't we build three tabernacles, one to you, one to Moses, and one to Elijah? Peter had never seen Moses and Elijah. Amen. How did he know who they were? But there was something about them that he recognized them in the area of the garden tomb. When Jesus decided to reveal himself to Mary, she recognized him, didn't she? And he's in the glorified body. I think we'll recognize one another in heaven. And then he says, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. No, here speaks of perception. It talks about assurance. It has to do with a physical likeness, not a spiritual one, because we already have a spiritual likeness to Christ, don't we? Amen. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. 
We've not always been the born ones of God, have we? Listen to what Jesus said to some lost religious people. John 8, 44, you're your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. God is the creator of all men. He is not the father of all men. Amen. This idea of the universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man is foreign to the word of God. Amen. Satan is the father of some folks because they've never repented toward God and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we turn to God in repentance, I said and he saves us, he gives us a new nature. That's what the word of God says. And that's why we have a problem with sin in this flesh, okay? Galatians 5, 17. You're familiar with this verse, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary, the one to the other, so you cannot do the things that you would. Why do I have such a problem serving God? Because you live in the flesh. Your spirit wants to serve God. Your flesh says, I don't think so. And there's a battle going on. But verse 2 says, when he, when Jesus shall appear, we shall be like him. The resurrection, the rapture of the saved is spoken of here. The glorification of the physical body. We'll get the same kind of body Jesus has. What was that? I don't know. You don't know much, do you, preacher? Well, apparently not. Like means to be fashioned like. It speaks of the outward appearance. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. We may be the generation that gets changed without having to go through death. And if you look at the world situation, folks, and keep your eyes on the Middle East, you got to say it's closer and closer and closer. You know we have to be changed if we're going to see Jesus as he is. Amen. You ever think about that? 1 Timothy 6 verse 14, keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, listen to this, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. What did he say about where Jesus dwells, the light? You can't approach to it. In this flesh, we can't approach to it. You know what would happen if we were to see Jesus as he is right now in this flesh? <laughs> it would be, we'd vaporize. Had a young man worked for my dad, told us one day at work, Jesus walked into his room in the middle of the night. One of the others who was an unbeliever said, well, did it scare? He said, I'd be scared if Jesus walked into my room. <laughs> I think I would be too in this flesh because it cannot come into the presence of Almighty God. Kenneth Weiss said this, only at the rapture we will be able to see the Lord as he is now for physical eyes in a mortal body could not look on that glory. Only eyes in a glorified body and that is the reason we shall be like him for only in that state can we see him just as he is. But we're going to see him because we got the glorified body and we're going to look like Jesus looked. What's heaven going to be like? I don't know. What's the glorified body going to be like? I don't know. Here's what I do know. We shall see Jesus and we'll be satisfied. Psalm 17, 15, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. 
the dignity of the believer. We're the children of God, the sons of God, the destiny of the believer. We're going to be like him for we shall see him as he is. That's what we shall be. And here's what we should be. And this is the duty of the believer. Verse 3 is based on verses 1 and 2. Especially verse 2. When he shall appear, we shall be like him. Okay? Well, I guess verse 1 2. We're the children of God. We're the born ones of God. And what does verse 3 say? And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Now, we know that this word hope, you've heard it so many times, glad expectation. It's not an iffy thing. We know it's a certainty. That's the only way that we can go to a funeral service of a brother or sister in Christ and preach the kind of messages we preach. We're going to see him again. We're going to see her again. Why? Because we have this glad expectation that comes from God. This hope that comes from God. And that expectation is being together with them in a glorified body, but not just being together with them. See, we're going to look for a lot of things probably. I've heard people, when I get to heaven, I'm going to look up so-and-so. And, you know, I tell you what, when you get to heaven, the first person you're going to want to see is Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, we may see others, and I think we'll see them and recognize them, but we'll want to see Jesus. And it's grounded in the expectation of the truthfulness of God. God does not, cannot, will not lie. And in him here, every man that hath this hope in him actually could be looked at as upon him. Our hope rests upon not what I think, not what I hope. My hope rests upon Jesus. My hope rests upon God. So you know what? We live like some people that have some hope. I know the world's corrupt. The nation is I like what Vance Havner said one time. I would say the nation's going to the dogs, but I don't out of respect for dogs. Okay? Because I don't think even a dog would do some of the things that are going on in this nation today. That's not a political statement. That's a moral statement, all right? We're to live like people with some hope, with some glad expectation. Have you ever watched? Have you ever watched growing up, where we lived, there was a miniature golf course in the park down below our house. And if you could find a lost golf ball and return it to them, you'd play a game for free. Or every once in a while, you could scrape together 50 cents and go pay to play. And when I would learn that as a, as a child, when I'd learn that we were going to go down there and play, I used to get so excited. You ever watch a child do that? You're going to take them somewhere they want to go? And you let them know it, and boy, they're just bouncing off the walls. Oh boy, oh boy, we're going wherever, you know, and I'm going to get to do this, and I'm going to see this, and all of these things. But that's how we're supposed to live as children of God. Glad expectation. 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope Glad expectation that is in you with meekness and fear. Okay? <laughs> Live in a way that causes people to say, what's wrong with you? Amen. Prices going up, chance of living going down, and you're happy? Something wrong with you. No, something's right with me. I know Christ is Savior. And here's the duty of the believer. Everyone that hath this hope in him or upon him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Purifieth here is to make hagios. That word's translated holy sometimes. Okay? 
sanctified, set apart. Everybody that hath this hope sets himself apart. It means to make chaste, not contaminated by evil, to make pure from every defilement. We said this, thus the hope of being like the Lord Jesus arouses the determination to be pure like him, and this brings into play the will of the Christian to carry that resolve out into action. I'm a child of God. I have the hope of the expectation of being with Jesus, of going to heaven. I need to live like Jesus. If I really want to be known as a Christian. So upon dependence upon the Holy Spirit, we do our best to put sin out of our lives and we're determined to keep it out by God's grace. Here's how the Apostle Paul said it, and we're about to close, but for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. That's how we're to live. You know what he's saying? He's saying, live like Jesus is coming soon. And like you're expecting him to come soon. Because he is. Would you do anything different in your life for the rest of this day if you knew Jesus were coming tonight? Is there somebody you'd witness to? Is there some amends you'd make with a brother or sister in Christ? Or with one of the Lord's churches? If you knew Jesus was coming tonight. I heard a story about a group of teenagers that were at a party. They're enjoying themselves. And somebody suggested they go to a certain hangout for a little while and just have a good time. One saved girl was there and she said, I'd rather you took me home. That's what she said to her date. She said, my parents don't approve of that kind of place or that kind of activity. And so one of the mean girls, you've heard of mean girls. One of the mean girls said, are you afraid your father will hurt you? The girl said, no, I'm not afraid that my father will hurt me. I'm afraid I might hurt him. Amen. She understood that principle that a true child of God who has experienced the love of God in their lives does not want to hurt their heavenly father. And I believe it grieves God. See, again, quench not the spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. First Thessalonians says that. And then Ephesians 4 says that. When we sin against God, we hurt the heart of our Heavenly Father. I don't want to be ashamed before my Lord as is coming. I said that. I certainly don't want Him to be ashamed of me. Two verses, and we're going to close. 1 John 2, 28, Now little children abide in Him, that when He shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. And Hebrews eleven sixteen, which speaks to my heart a lot of times because it talks about those people of faith in the 11th chapter of Hebrews and verse 16. In that verse it says, God was not ashamed to be called their God. And sometimes I ask myself, is God ashamed to be called? Is he ashamed for me to tell people, look, I'm a child of God. Is he ashamed for me to say, look, I'm a preacher. Is he ashamed of me? When I say, invite people to church or, or try to witness to somebody. Because God was not ashamed to be called their God. We sometimes sing, 
We're not going to sing this today, but we sometimes sing, What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, when he takes me by the hand and leads me to the promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be. And that ought to just make you go, woo! All right. Folks, Jesus is coming back. There is the dignity of the believer. I'm a son of God. I'm a child of God. There's the destiny of the believer. It doesn't yet appear what we'll be, but we're going to be like him. And there's the duty of the believer. There's a certain way I ought to live as a child of God. So a child never has to ask his daddy, have I ever seen a Christian? If he's seen me or you.